There shall be joy in heaven upon one sinner that doth penance more than upon 99 just who need not penance. Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for uh, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and the confusion stops here. We're going to talk today about the Blessed Virgin Mary and how devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary is essential to the spiritual life. Many Catholics agree that devotion to Mary is a great consolation in our days, uh, just as Our Lady prophesied to Mother Mariana of Jesus some four centuries ago. But I am to show that uh, devotion to Mary is actually necessary and always has been, and we'll talk about why. Also, I hope you had a blessed Feast of the Sacred Heart last Friday, uh, and remember that whatever sin the world might be celebrating this month, um, for the Church, June is the month of the Sacred Heart. And with that in mind, I'd like to begin today's program by looking at the Gospel from last Sunday's celebration of the Extraordinary Form Mass, which is the third Sunday after Pentecost, and the Gospel is taken from Luke 15, verses 1 through 10. At that time, the publicans and sinners drew near unto Jesus to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners, and eateth with them. And he spoke to them this parable, saying, What man of you that hath an hundred sheep, and if he shall lose one of them, doth he not leave the ninety-nine in the desert, and go after that which was lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, lay it upon his shoulders, rejoicing. And coming home, call together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. I say to you that even so there shall be joy in heaven upon one sinner that doth penance, more than upon ninety-nine just who need not penance. Or what woman, having ten groats, a groat being a coin, if she lose one groat, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently until she find it? And when she hath found it, call together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the groat which I had lost. So I say to you, there shall be joy before the angels of God upon one sinner doing penance. Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. Now, of course, like all Gospels, there's a lot here. Uh, first off, the Pharisees are murmuring again. And, of course, we know that the Pharisees considered themselves uh, perfect because they followed uh, kind of every jot and tittle of the law. They considered themselves better than other men, and so they avoided the company of sinners and the ritually unclean, and they required others to do likewise. And so they apparently didn't know or didn't want to know uh, that a truly just man feels compassion for sinners, and that the saints always desired and endeavored to promote the conversion of sinners to, to be concerned about their eternal welfare. True justice, according to St. Gregory the Great, true justice, he says, has compassion for sinners, while false justice, false and hypocritical justice, is angry with them. You know the old axiom, hate the sin, but love the sinner. And uh, not always easy, especially when the sinners are, you know, burning down your town or destroying your business. But I hasten to remind you that we are all sinners and should hate no one's sins more than our own. We should therefore love sinners in imitation of Jesus and pray earnestly for their conversion. Maybe more on that later. But <clears throat> our Lord's parable of the lost sheep is also connected to his identity as the good shepherd. As we read in John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 11 through 16. 
You recall that Jesus, having come to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, went to the temple and taught there, saying, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep, but the hireling and he that is not the shepherd seeth the wolf coming and fleeth. I am the good shepherd, and I know mine, and mine know me, and I lay down my life for my sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. So by this simile of the good shepherd, our Lord teaches us how great uh, is his compassion and love for all of mankind. Jews and Gentiles, black and white, male and female, uh, you know, slave and free, were all his sheep, and he gave his life for all sacrificed on the cross to redeem us from sin and hell. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross redeemed everyone. Like Pope Francis said and got himself in some hot water uh, some years back, he said, uh, everyone is redeemed. Christ redeemed us all, even the atheists. And, and that's true, but it doesn't mean that we're all going to heaven. Because, uh, but since Christ paid the price for us all, we all have an equal opportunity to gain eternal salvation. So Christ redeemed us all, therefore he is the good shepherd. He's the one and only good shepherd. And all others who are called to share in his pastoral office are good shepherds only insofar as they imitate Jesus in their love and care of the flock confided to them. And it's an important distinction. Now, last week a, a listener took me to task Uh, after I criticized Bishop Wilton Gregory of uh, Washington, D.C. Diocese, because he had scolded the St. John Paul II National Shrine um, over a visit from the President of the United States. Uh, A visit, by the way, made in advance of his introducing international legislation promoting religious freedom, which is something you would assume the Church would be concerned about, and and an invitation that was made weeks before um, the Black Lives Matter protests, which was the context uh, uh, for Bishop Gregory's rather strident remarks. And I commented that the good bishop's political prejudice was showing. And I said that I considered his statement, or more properly, really it was a screed, uh, that it was an example of trying to remove the speck from your brother's eye uh, without, uh, you know, while ignoring the plank in your own. Now, in response, one of our listeners contacted Virgin Most Powerful Radio and um, invoked the alleged locution to Mutter Vogel, quoted in the Pieta prayer book, to this effect, quote, One should never attack a priest, even when he is in error. Rather, one should pray and do penance that I'll grant him my grace again. He alone fully represents me, even when he doesn't live after my example. So the allegedly the words of Christ to Mutter Vogel. Now, first off, I don't consider my remarks to uh, constitute an attack on the good bishop. Uh, Secondly, Mutter Vogel's alleged revelation from our Lord are not approved by the church and are private revelations and therefore not binding on the conscience in any case. But given the teaching that we should love sinners in imitation of Jesus and earnestly pray for their conversion, what to make of the allegation that Catholics are not allowed criticize priests or bishops. Well, uh, with all due respect to the Pieta prayer book, I would ask you to consider Canon 212 of the current Code of Canon Law, which says, and I quote, the Catholic faithful have the right, indeed at times the duty, 
in keeping with their knowledge, competence, and position to manifest to the sacred pastors their views on matters which concern the good of the church. They have the right also to make their views known to others of Christ's faithful, but in so doing they must always respect the integrity of faith and morals, show due reverence to the pastors, and take into account both the common good and the dignity of individuals. Now, this speaks to the very conversion of sinners for which we pray. Uh, entered into in the right spirit, right? Respect for faith and morals, due reverence to the ecclesiastical dignity, like it says in the code. It is a spiritual work of mercy. Now, if, if you know, any listener think I failed in this, then, you know, they're certainly entitled to their opinion. And for that matter, they might be right, in which case, mea culpa. Uh, but, but I submit that our, our obedience and our deference to a bishop presupposes uh, and is grounded in their complete fidelity to the pure teaching of Holy Mother Church. And this must be. Like G.K. Chesterton said, the Catholic faith is the only thing that keeps us from being a slave to the age, to our age. You know, we must never give in to the spirit of the age. Because, And Chesterton again, he who marries the spirit of this age will become a widow in the next You know, in the midst of the moral confusion of our modern culture, which is evident even sometimes in bishops, it's more important than ever for Catholic laity to be able to discern between the legitimate exercise of Episcopal authority and the abuse of Episcopal power. Our bishops are good shepherds only insofar as they imitate Jesus and their love and care of the flock confided to them. And that, my friends, is no nonsense. Um, before we go to the first break, I wanted to mention, uh, speaking of good shepherds, I uh, suppose, I hope you've been listening to the Terry and Jesse show. These last weeks, uh, we've had Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas, as a guest. Uh, he's been speaking with Terry on the Terry and Jesse show. And from that fruitful relationship has blossomed forth uh, a new program. Bishop Strickland is going to be joining us uh, in the VMPR lineup. Each week he's going to have his own program, the Bishop Strickland Hour. So one hour a week we'll be spending with this Good Shepherd. And, and Bishop Strickland is, um, he's well-versed in the Catholic faith. He understands and embraces his ministry, right? Understands his responsibility to teach and govern and sanctify and really embraces his role as teacher. So they're going to be talking about... Uh, the things that, because he tweets and he blogs, uh, you know, he teaches quite publicly, he makes his opinion known, and he is definitely one of the good ones. So they're going to start the program, I understand, talking about his, his latest tweets and blogs, the things that we're talking about in culture, and then move into, um, you know, how that is affected by the actual teaching of the faith. And so they will go into the various uh, um, uh, topics and subjects that treat of our current situation from the teaching of the Catholic Church. I myself am looking very much forward to it. I hope you are as well. When we come back, more about the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus is our good shepherd, and then later in the program, is devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary essential, not just to the spiritual life, but actually to salvation? The answer might surprise you, so please stick around. We'll be right back with more No-Nonsense Catholic on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the Help of the Helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. news today seems to be coming from everywhere and everyone. It's confusing at least and untrustworthy at the worst. Dr. Aceta is a faithful Catholic in the Kern County community. He is trustworthy, well-researched, and will only give expert opinion on matters in his own specialty. Catholic teaching at its entirety is of utmost importance to Dr. Aceta. Give Dr. Aceta a call for your obstetrics and gynecological needs at 661-695-6617. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, your internet home for Keep It Simple Catholicism. I'm Matthew Arnold, and we're talking today about the parable of the lost sheep and how it shows us you know, that Jesus knows his own. He knows all about us, you and me, our needs, our weaknesses, our thoughts and activities. He, he is the one that leads us into the fold of his church, helps us by his grace, enlightens us with his doctrine, nourishes and strengthens us with his flesh and blood and most blessed sacrament. He has a true divine and therefore infinite pastoral love for all of us, for everyone. You know, he died, as we mentioned last time, for us all. He redeemed us all. But we must cooperate with the graces won for us on the Holy Cross uh, if we wish to be among the sheep at his right hand on the day of judgment, to be among those to whom he will address the words, Come, you blessed of my Father, possess you the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now, we talked about the, uh, the lost sheep. We also talked about the parable of the good shepherd. And there's several doctrines that are conveyed. For example, that our Lord distinctly foretells his sacrifice and death when he says, I lay down my life for my sheep. 
He is the Lord, the chief shepherd of the redeemed. The sheep belong to him because he's bought them with his precious blood. As St. Peter says, you were bought with a price. Uh, and the one united, the Catholic church that Jesus foretold, you know, he said the Gentiles would believe in him and that all the faithful, Jew and Gentile, uh, uh, slave and free, male and female, etc., would be united in one fold under one shepherd. According to our Lord's words, there was to be only one church, and this one church was to be united. It was not meant to be split up into 40,000 different denominations, but to spread itself, this one church, over the whole face of the earth. That all nations were to be gathered into this one fold. And this church, foretold by our Lord, uh, was to be universal. And uh, this one united Catholic church can only be the Roman Catholic church, you know, in which the faithful of the whole world are joined together in real unity and in a single government under the one chief shepherd, who is the Pope. This reality is what made medieval Christendom unique in the history of the world. Christian civilization that, that, that rose like a phoenix from the ashes of the pagan Roman Empire. The distinction of, of Christendom from the pagan empires that preceded it was precisely this, that the Catholic kingdoms of England, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, etc., they were all sovereign kingdoms with their own languages, their own customs and traditions, but they were also united in the one true religion. It's what, what St. Paul prophesied in Ephesians chapter 4, that there should be one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in us all. Now, I don't know if you realize, but medieval Christendom was the first civilization I mean, we're talking, and distinct from tribal communities, but the first civilization in history that did not have as its economic foundation uh, in slavery. And this civilization fulfilled St. Paul's ideal of many peoples united together in one faith. This is real, uh, as they say, unity in diversity, that there are diverse kingdoms, cultures, language, but they are united in the true faith. And it's because of the, the actual historical realization of that ideal that Western civilization, Christian civilization, flourished and became the envy of the world. And that's also why it is so antithetical to true Catholicity to support political globalism. And it's, and it's ironic, I mean, hypocritical, really, uh, considering that the, the, the globalist supposed hatred of the old uh, order and the old you know, colonialism that supposedly went around destroying existing societies and seeking to impose Christian morality on them. Well, you know, they're only too happy to, to openly seek to destroy our society and to seek precisely to impose their own false morality uh, on us. But, you know, those two things, are they alike or, or is there a difference? And 
Well, take an example from the bad old days of colonialism. And colonialism has, by and large, been repudiated in the world today. But I can recall an episode during the uh, colonization of India when Hindu priests came to the the British commander-in-chief, General Charles Napier, and they, they were complaining to him about the prohibition of sati. And sati was the, the uh, uh, religious custom of uh, throwing uh, widows, to burning them alive on their deceased husband's funeral pyre. The British said, no, you can't do that anymore. Uh, but the Hindus sought to reinstate the practice on the grounds with the argument that it was their custom. And uh, General Napier famously replied, you say it is your custom to burn widows. He says, well, very well, we also have a custom uh, where when men burn a a woman alive, we tie a rope around their necks and hang them. So build your funeral pyre, and beside it my carpenters will build a gallows. Then you may follow your custom, and we will follow ours. Now, was he justified in this? You see, the difference in attitude between Napier and the modern progressives. Customs and manners are one thing, and and they can and should be tolerated, but not when they go against morality. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, as usual, explained it well. He said, we're justified in enforcing good morals, for they belong to all mankind. But we are not justified in enforcing good manners, for good manners always mean our manners. Right, so yeah, customs, traditions, uh, culture, that's, all, that's one thing. But the Ten Commandments are for everybody. You know, when in Rome do as the Romans do doesn't apply to the Ten Commandments, which is the, you know, the natural law that's written on the hearts of men. But this renders the forces of globalism you know, in high places powerless to stop, the, say, the violence and the misogyny of uh, Muslim immigrants that have been tearing Europe apart now for years. Uh, or, you know, in our country, the, 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 new, barb- the new barbarians, right, the, the, the BLM people and their socialist fellow travelers in this country. And, and powerless because they reject an objective moral standard on the one hand, and then on the other, because their more radical element encourages the violence and mayhem because they feed off the chaos in order to, to further their own agenda. You know... Uh, The parable of the lost sheep shows our Lord's love and compassion for individual sinners, right? The sheep signifies the sinner who obeys his own evil inclinations and and, and follows the allurements of sin and separates himself from Jesus and cuts himself off from the body of Christ. But the Savior doesn't withdraw his love from him, right? Just the same way that during his earthly life he worked for the conversion of sinners, he goes after the sinner today, calls him by his grace, right, through the church, through, through the sacraments, through you and I. Uh, he invites the sinner to come back to the fold uh, by, by means of, the, of the, the sacrament of penance. And when Jesus finds him, he supports him at, on, the, on that often difficult road of penance and receives him back with joy. And that means every sinner. That includes even erring bishops and, and uh, anarchist activists and even uh, fault-fighting Catholic radio hosts. You know, I've got, I've got some theology here I was going to share with you, but I think instead I, I wasn't planning on doing this. But I'm going to tell you a story. Um, 
a few days ago, somebody sent me um, a video clip of a fellow, strapping young fellow, walking down the sidewalk, and from the other direction comes an elderly woman, 92 years old, inching her way along with a walker. And as they pass each other, this young fellow, unprovoked and, uh, and, uh, and without warning, lashes out, punches this old woman hard in the face, and she naturally falls, strikes her head on a fire hydrant on the way down to the concrete, while he continues to strut along without hesitation like the cock of the walk. Now, I don't know the interior life, the, the specific circumstances of these two individuals. I don't know exactly what happened. I understand that the woman survived and that the, the fellow's been uh, arrested. But I can imagine, okay, and, and this is just, this is my imagination. I can imagine a woman, uh, an elderly woman, nearing the end of her life, who's suffering from the martyrdom of, of old age and infirmity, and whatever the circumstances were that would have brought her unaccompanied to, to a, a busy city street when she can barely walk, just moving herself along an inch at a time with that walker. And to add to that, the, the injury and the pain and the indignity of this unprovoked attack, and then, of course, the, the, the pain... And, and, uh, of recovery and the nightmares and the trauma that follows on that kind of thing. And I can well imagine this woman being received at the end of her earthly sojourn into the kingdom of God, into the embrace of our Lord, uh, surrounded by the, the compassion of the angels. It's not hard to imagine that. But what about her attacker? Can we imagine... Someone like that, someone who is, I mean, the definition of lost, who's wandering through the world, teetering on the brink of the abyss, carrying hell with him, who would be capable of, of, of doing such a despicable thing. And let's assume that the good shepherd encounters this man with his unmerited, undeserved grace and mercy, and that he accepts it and that he is truly contrite, and that he pours himself out in confession and, and true conversion and pays the price for his crimes and, and enters into a life of, of penance and prayer, and at the end of his earthly sojourn is confined to the flames of purgatory until the perfect justice of God is satisfied. And then, and only then, enters into the kingdom of heaven and into the embrace of his former victim as brother and sister of Christ. Children of God in the house of the Father. Do you think the angels would rejoice over that? I think they do. And that is what we're praying for. And that's no nonsense. Okay, when we return... I'm going to talk about devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Is it essential for the Catholic spiritual life? Is it essential for salvation? We're going to find out. The answer might surprise you when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic and Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us.
Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the help of the helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And here's an easy way to support us by going to smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center or Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And when you log in your Amazon account and you purchase products, a portion of it will go right back in supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And it doesn't cost you a dime. I want to thank you ahead of time because that supports us year-round. May God bless you and your family. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to uh, No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm Matthew Arnold. Confusion stops here. Talking about devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. I have told this story before. I think I told it just about a year ago on Happy Hour, and it bears repeating. About 20 years ago, I was giving a talk. I was preparing at a convention in Kansas, and we were doing the Q&A session and, uh, you know, a bunch of the speakers. And the question came up, is devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary necessary for salvation? And there was a fellow on the panel, a, an apologist. He's a uh, evangelical Christian convert to Catholicism. And he said, no, you know, the rosary, the angelus, these things are not obligatory. Private apparitions are not de fide. They're not part of the deposit of faith. So devotion to Mary is good. It's commendable. He said, I personally am very devoted to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Pray the rosary every day. But technically, it's not essential for salvation. And there was an older priest on the panel. He's not a, not an author, not a celebrity, just a local priest who was there and invited to sit in on the Q and a panel. And he took the mic and gently, but firmly corrected my colleague. Not only he said is devotion to Mary essential to living a good Catholic life. It is in fact necessary for our salvation. 
And he quoted St. Thomas Aquinas to the effect that Mary is the whole hope of our salvation. Uh, Saints Bonaventure and St. Bernard agree, as do a whole host of saints and doctors of the Church. And we're going to talk about why devotion to Mary is essential, but I want to say that my apologies, uh, apologist colleague took the correction well and with due humility and, and with gratitude. Because I'll tell you right now, a good apologist is always, uh, he loves to be corrected because a good apologist loves the truth. And I understand, you know, for many of our separated brethren, when they convert to the Catholic Church, Mary is a great obstacle. I remember uh, evangelizing a fellow, talking with him over probably the course of a year, and his objections kind of went down like dominoes one by one, okay, apostolic succession, the authority of the church, scripture and tradition, faith and works, you know, the, the seven sacraments, and we finally, we got to Mary, and, you know, starting over like the dominoes, okay, uh, mother of God, immaculate conception, perpetual virginity, and he says, yes, 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 and we finally, we get around to the assumption of Mary, which is one of the Marian dogmas, and, and he was bringing up these kind of obscure arguments, and I, I finally said, you know, I snapped. I said, look, you're not, <laughs> you're not looking for answers. Your, your problem, you know, isn't the assumption. You're just grasping at straws trying to find some reason not to convert. You're already convinced. You know, uh, Bishop Sheen said sometimes people resist the truth because it's hard to face, but because it's even harder to follow. And that's just it. This guy actually had a, a price to pay to be Catholic, not merely having to embrace um, Catholic belief and practice, which is no picnic compared to, you know, that once saved, always saved evangelical spirituality. But as it turns out, he was involved uh, in a chain of bookstores. He was himself a pastor of an evangelical church. He, he had to give up his livelihood and, and his friends and, you know, people in his life that didn't understand in order to become Catholic, which I'm happy to say he found the courage to do and the grace. But Mary is a great obstacle for many converts. Now, for me, not a problem. You know, I didn't uh, have any anti-Mary animus or, or anti-Catholic feelings of any kind. I mean, my, my parents, like millions of others, you know, my family stopped going to church in the early 60s when I was just a little kid, and they didn't give me any real religious formation, but they also didn't pass on any uh, religious uh, prejudice or intolerance either, uh, for which I am grateful, you know, and I, you guys, uh, many of you are going to be familiar with my story, and if you're not, then you can... Uh, I encourage you to to um, seek it out. But I went to RCIA not intending to be Catholic, and it was and it was through the Rosary, it was through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin and my beloved wife, that I was able to cooperate with the grace of the Holy Ghost and convert to Catholicism. And I can tell you that the Rosary became a very important part of my life, my spirituality, my marriage, our family's life. You know, we, I would talk more about the rosary later if we, if we have the latitude. But I want to talk about why devotion to Mary is so essential. And, and like Thomas Aquinas, I think we should start with the objections. You know, and the first is that, is our love for Mary exaggerated? Is it too much? Well, I would ask another question. Who is it that teaches us to love Mary? Well, it's God. God loves her more than all other creatures. And how do I know that? Well, because by a special grace, he preserved her from the stain of original sin. He chose her to be the mother of God, the son. He gave her the choice. 
whether or not she was going to accept that role. No one, listen, no one is equal to Mary. All persons are either above or below her. And, of course, only God is above her. God the, the, the Father, God her, uh, the Holy Spirit, her beloved spouse, God uh, the Son, her, her divine Son, Jesus. And all creatures, all her fellow creatures, are below her. In the greatest of saints doesn't measure up to the dignity of the Blessed Virgin. And so after the, the love of adoration, the worship that we owe to God, who is our creator and the author of our salvation, our greatest love after that should be the veneration, the, the reverence, the respect that we show to Mary, who is mother of God and our mother. So can we love the Blessed Virgin too much? That's the question, and the answer is no. <laughs> the more we love the Blessed Virgin, the more we become like Jesus. And we know we can never love her as much as he does. Therefore, we can never love her too much. Furthermore, the, the, our love for the Blessed Virgin is inseparable from our love for God. You know, I think what our separated brethren are afraid of when they come into the church is that our love for Mary somehow takes away from our love for God or for Jesus. But we know that the Blessed Virgin Mary is the path to God, hence the axiom to Jesus through Mary. Right? The more we love God, the more we're going to love the Blessed Virgin. Uh, and therefore, true love for Mary must continually, always increase, always be growing. Because it's inseparably connected to our love for God, which likewise should continue to deepen throughout our lives. And we know that the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, is the, uh, the path to God. We cannot love God without loving the Blessed Virgin. Once we realize, and this is the distinction, that once we realize that she is truly the mother of God, it's impossible to love Jesus without loving Mary. Now, that doesn't mean we have to expressly think about her every time we think about God. But remember that her greatest joy is to see us grow closer to him. That is why she tells us in the Magnificat, in the inspired words of the Holy Scripture, my soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. People wonder, does, does true devotion to Mary run counter to the adoration that we owe to Jesus? Again, no, not at all. I mean, this is the stumbling block for our separated brethren. But, but true devotion to Mary does not, cannot run counter to the uh, adoration due to Jesus. On the contrary, history shows that whenever devotion to Mary wanes, faith in the divinity of Christ tends to disappear as well. The Council of Ephesus back in the year 431 was called to correct the heresy of Nestorius, who denied the hypostatic union. He, he taught that there were two persons in Christ, one human and one divine, and claimed that Mary was the mother only of the human person of Jesus, right? Mother of Jesus, but not mother of God. Dangerously close to the position held by some of our separated brethren, by the way. But the council defended the church's teaching that there's only one person in Christ, God the Son, second person of the Blessed Trinity. But that one person has two natures, human and divine. But Mary is not the mother of his nature, right? His, just his human nature. She's the mother of his person, and he is only one person, one divine person. So they, they proclaimed Mary Theotokos, literally God-bearer. Jesus is God, Mary's the mother of Jesus, 
Therefore, Mary is the mother of God. You miss it on Mary, and you miss it on Jesus. And we know how these same mainstream Protestant denominations that abandoned devotion to Mary in the 16th century became responsible for the demythologization of Scripture in the 19th century. They tried to explain away the miracles of Christ and separated the so-called Christ of faith from the Christ of history, uh, the Christ who was a preacher and a faith healer, but, but certainly not uh, a divine person. And it's, it's a progression. We saw with the rise of, of Protestantism in the 16th century the idea that you don't need a pope. You can go directly to God, which, which gave rise to the egalitarianism and liberalism of the 18th century that said you don't need a king, which begat the modernism and socialism of the 20th century that says you don't need God. <laughs> in every case, we see a deepening rejection of mediatorship. I don't need the Pope or Mary or the saints because I can go directly to God, and I don't need a king because I can govern myself, and ultimately I don't need God because I'm my own God. I can decide for myself what's good and evil. St. Paul told Timothy, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. But who's our mediator with Christ? Or should I say mediatrix? Well, we read about it in John chapter 2 and the wedding at Cana. You know, St. Bernard of Clairvaux shows how she acted as mediator, Mary acted as mediator for the couple. A mediator, he said, was needed with the mediator himself, nor could a more fitting one be found than Mary. Everything. Everything comes to us through the hands of Mary, including Jesus himself, and not just at the stable at Bethlehem. St. Bonaventure put it this way, no one ever finds Christ but through the hands of Mary. And that includes Jesus. Uh, uh, It says, whoever seeks Christ apart from Mary seeks him in vain. In other words, no Mary, no Jesus. And then Thomas Aquinas says, through the intercession of Mary, many souls are in paradise who would not be there had she not interceded for them. For God has entrusted her with the treasures of the heavenly kingdom. Now, these quotes and countless others represent a crucial doctrine that Mary is co-redemptrix and mediatrix of all graces, a doctrine of the church that flows from Mary's role as mother of God and new Eve. And when we come back, we're going to talk about that role, that doctrine of Mary as uh, co-redemptrix with Christ and mediatrix of all graces and what that means to you and to me when we come back with lots more no-nonsense catholic right here on virgin most powerful radio Hi, this is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need Covenant Eyes to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant Eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to CovenantEyes.com and type in the promo code VMPR to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the eminent threats on the internet. www.CovenantEyes.com Code V 
M-P-R, live porn free. Thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you. God bless you. Keep the faith. In Luke 7, Jesus said, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven her because she has been shown great love. According to St. John of the Cross, Christians should always remember that the value of their good works is not based on number and excellence. Their value is based on the love for God that prompts them to do the works. May we always be motivated by true love for God and not worry so much about what we do, but why we do it. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, your internet home for Keep It Simple Catholicism. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Talking about Mary, uh, the essential aspect of devotion to Mary in the Catholic spiritual life, even in salvation, and her role as co-redemptrix and mediatrix of all graces. You know, um, the years 1840 to 1950 are often referred to as the Marian century. Uh, and it's because of the definition of two Marian dogmas, Immaculate Conception and the Assumption, you know, raising those doctrines uh, to the level of dogma. And we had the apparition of Mary at Lourdes and Fatima. And it was really a time of a great deepening of the Church's understanding of the doctrine of Mary as co-redemptrix and mediatrix of all graces. And it was widely assumed, I mean, in, in many sectors in the Church, that when John the Twenty Third called the Second Vatican Council, that they would proclaim uh, a fifth Marian dogma, that they would make a dogma out of the doctrine of co-redemptrix and mediatrix of all graces. But you know, if you know the history of Vatican II, then you know that the schemas, the outlines for the proposed documents that were prepared for the Council, were rejected. Uh, they were all abandoned, and a, a more progressive faction of bishops. Uh, known as the Rhine Fathers, because they were primarily from Germany and the Netherlands, wanted the Council Fathers to prepare their own schemas. They, they were all put to a vote and, uh, and all rejected, but no vote was closer than the vote on the Marian Doctrine, the schema for the Marian Document. Um, it was abandoned like the other schemas, but the vote was really close. Uh, the Rhine faction prevailed, but only you know, by, by like 15 votes. Ultimately, the Second Vatican Council produced no Marian docu document uh, at all. The Fathers relegated the teaching on Mary to Chapter 8 of Lumen Gentium, which is the Constitution on the Church. And they presented her not so much as co-redemptrix or mediatrix of graces, but as the model Christian. Uh, you know, a model in the sense of being someone to imitate. And that's, and that's fine and true, certainly, as far as it goes. I mean, I don't have any 
problem necessarily with that document. But but we know that through a new unique privilege of grace, and she's immaculately conceived, she's, um, pardon me, she continues her life, remains without sin. Uh, she cooperated in a unique way with our salvation as co-redemptrix, as mediatrix. Uh, but this was, you know, I mean, it was not emphasized at the council, probably for ecumenical reasons. I mean, and like I say, I don't have a... a issue with what's in the dogmatic constitution of the church. I just think that uh, it's unfortunate that they left some things out. And again, unfortunately, in the years following the council, the so-called spirit of Vatican II, you know, kind of artificially separated the church into this, you know, pre-conciliar and post-conciliar, like everything that happened before Vatican II and now everything that happens after. Um, And because of that de-emphasis, you know, in many sectors of the church, they, you know, devotion to to Mary, especially the Rosary, was seen as pre-Vatican II, and it was largely abandoned. <clears throat> and I would say that this is clearly not the intention of the Council Fathers, and and certainly not of the document. And you know, as Exhibit A, I would say Paul VI, Pope Paul VI himself, after the Council, wrote two documents on Mary and the Rosary. In in Christi Matri, which was published for the month of the Rosary back in 1966. He said, and I quote, it is a solemn custom of the faithful during the month of October to weave the prayers of the rosary into mystical garlands for the mother of Christ. Following in the footsteps of our predecessors, we heartily approve this and call upon all the sons of the church to offer special devotion to the most blessed virgin. Now, hardly a repudiation of the rosary. And then in his other document, Marialdus Cultis, that uh, came out in the 70s, 74, He said, from the moment when we were called to the Sea of Peter, we have constantly striven to enhance devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. Not only with the intention of interpreting the sentiments, interpreting the sentiments of the church and our own personal indication, inclination rather, but also because, as is well known, this devotion forms a very noble part of the whole sphere of sacred worship, which is the primary task of the people of God. You know, in in one of her apparitions, Mary herself says, the prayer of my predilection, that means the one that she likes best, is the Holy Rosary. And it's for that reason, in my apparitions, I always ask that it be recited. You know, we got a list of popes, as long as your arm, that have uh, promoted the Holy Rosary. The Church itself teaches that the Rosary, after the liturgy, right, after the, the Mass and the Liturgy of the Hours, the Holy Rosary is the best, the most efficacious prayer for Catholics to recite in common. And you can gain a plenary indulgence every time you say the Rosary in public. And that includes your family Rosary, which is why, you know, we've made that a, a part of our own family spirituality. In our house, every night we pray the Rosary together. And, and I love it. The Rosary combines mental and vocal prayer. It can be deeply contemplative if you allow yourself to contemplate the mysteries, which form a veritable compendium of the gospel and helps us to know God through the intercession of the one human creature who knew him uh, and knows him best, and that's Mary. And not only that, of course, I have a, a medieval mentality, and I would suggest that most of the problems in our modern culture, the stuff that we were talking about earlier in the program, derive precisely from bad thinking. And the rosary is a thinking prayer. Our Lady is, um, one of her titles is Virgin Most Prudent. And prudence is the virtue that helps to guide you 
to, you know, uh, making the best decisions. And Our Lady well knows uh, that uh, creeds go before deeds, right? In other words, that we behave, pardon me, we behave the way we believe. We act as we think. And daily meditation on the mysteries of the rosary is good thinking. Now, by the way, there are several versions of the rosary. There's the Servite rosary, which is a uh, uh, seven decades of Hail Marys uh, while you, uh, that you pray while you meditate on the seven sorrows of Mary. In the Franc- Franciscan rosary, they meditate on the seven joys of Mary. We have uh, the chaplet that John Paul II introduced, the Luminous Mysteries, which is uh, um, meditation on those five mysteries of the public ministry of Christ. But when I, when I say the rosary, I think what most Catholics will usually think of when, when somebody says the rosary, it's the one that was given by Our Lady to St. Dominic. The traditional 15 uh, mysteries of the rosary, the, the, the three chaplets. And you know what, I would tell you that that, that uh, structure really drives home the, the four great ends of religion. So number one, you have the joyful mysteries. And that reminds us that life and religion are meant to be just that. They're meant to be joyful. God made us to be happy. He put the first man and woman into a world that was a, a, a veritable paradise. And even with paradise lost, the joy remains. So St. Paul tells the Philippians, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. We've been redeemed. You know, and, and the, the joyful mysteries show us how to obtain that joy, which, namely by doing God's will like Mary and Joseph and Elizabeth and Zechariah and Anna and Simeon and the shepherds and the wise men. They all found happiness doing the will of God, and so shall we, regardless of our current circumstances. Number two, the sorrowful mysteries teach the second great truth of religion, which is that that sin is what makes this world a veil of tears. Sin, not doing God's will, is the path of sorrow. Going our way and not his way is the path to pain and unhappiness. Number three, the glorious mysteries teach us the third great truth of religion, which namely is that life has a purpose, life has a goal, even beyond death. You know, for for the Christian, life is not cyclic. We're not just going around in circles like the pagans of old. You know, life without purpose is exasperating. Life without meaning is, is, is maddening. And that's why the hallmark of of the ancient paganism was boredom and apathy and and suicide, which is not unlike the relativism and the secularism of our own day. But while we as Catholics, we mark the passage of time with a liturgical cycle that follows the yearly cycle of of, of seasons and, and follows the life of our Lord Jesus Christ, while we follow that cycle to mark time, Life itself for us is not secular, uh, cyclical, it's linear. We are, all of us, heading for a coming judgment. And that includes everyone on the earth. You know, our life is progressing towards something. Uh, you know, either heaven or hell. So the glorious mysteries remind us that our destiny as Christians is this glorious life beyond life. Because we are the children of God through baptism. We are the brothers and sisters of Christ. We are heirs to the kingdom of heaven. And then finally, the 15 mysteries taken together teach the fourth great truth of religion, which is that sanctity is for everyone. Lumen Gentium, the 
uh, a dogmatic constitution on the church from Vatican II that we were talking about earlier, teaches that all Christians of whatever rank or status, uh, with God's help, you know, uh, we are all called to holiness, and with God's help, it's actually within our reach. That is why there is a universal call to holiness. And the rosary gets us thinking about those truths, and thoughts lead to actions. Our Lady knows that, that you uh, cannot meditate on our Lord's life and death and resurrection day in and day out without it having a good effect. The rosary, prayed well and regularly, changes us. The thoughts that enfold you are the thoughts that mold you. And Our Lady is not asking for a revolution not a revolution, not even a reformation, but a restoration. Like I always say, the whole of Christianity is a restoration project from the beginning to restore the relationship with God that was broken in the Garden of Eden. And that requires a change of heart. And that's why Mary asks for the rosary, because the rosary changes hearts. It changed mine. And when hearts change, society changes And that's why St. John Paul II said in his encyclical Rosarium Virginis Mariae, the rosary helps us to be conformed ever more closely to Christ until we attain true holiness. And I want to leave you with this thought. All of the approved Marian apparitions have one thing in common, whether it's Our Lady of Lourdes, Our Lady of Guadalupe, Fatima, Akita, Our Lady of Good Success, Our Lady of Good Help. However she appears... In every case, it is the same Blessed Virgin Mary who appears. And all the messages, all the prophecies, all the apparitions, it is all Mary. And likewise with Marian devotions. It doesn't matter if it's the Rosary or the Angelus or the Memorare or the Litany of Loretto. It does not matter because it is all Mary. She is the one through whom Jesus came to us and heaven has made it clear that he wants us to likewise go to him through Mary. And that, my friend, is no nonsense. Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thanks for being with us. See you next week. Until then, may God richly bless you and your family. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were open to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church, so I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.